Good morning. It is so good to see you guys here today. Um, my name is Damian Thompson, and I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I get a chance to spend the next few minutes with you uh, as we're getting back to the life of David. Um, a couple things, though, that I just want to mention before I go any further. One is in our steps of uh, becoming church uh, attenders to becoming actual members and becoming uh, family together. Um, we have this a set of classes called Joining the Family. And if you are still kind of hovering on the outside of us, uh, just kind of, uh, can I just encourage you? you? You've seen who we are and you see what the Lord's got going on. Would you just consider coming on and just joining with us? So here's the thing. Next Sunday, uh, March 23rd is going to be, I said March 23rd. Yes, I did. April 23rd is what I meant. I'm not going to take you back a month. Um, it's it's going to be our next set of classes. They're going to be uh, starting right after the 11 o'clock service. They're going to be happening in the Cascade Pavilion, which is back this way, but we'll have signs up and make it easy. Everything is free. We, we're going to serve you lunch. We're going to feed you. And we've got several classes are available. Um, go to our app. Go to our website. Sign up. Come on out. Um, just about everybody there comes. Uh, learn something more about us and learns more about where it is that God has called us to be. So I just want to go ahead and share that. And I also want to go ahead and share this. As we're getting back into the life of David, last week was Resurrection Day. And we got to celebrate the fact that the grave is empty. Amen? And I got to tell you, Pastor Scott, thank you so much for the sermon that he gave. That was just good stuff. He was cooking last week. I don't know if you guys have noticed this about him, but if his notes are behind him and he's standing out front here and he's just talking to you, oh, get ready. Get ready, get ready, because the Holy Spirit is doing something. So, Scott, thank you for that. But I'm going to go back two weeks. And uh, Mark Milbrick was here, and he had us in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And he was walking us through this, this moment in David's life where, this, um, where the, the actions of this wise and discerning and courageous woman stepped in and helped avert David from doing something that just would have been so violent and so bad. And I am just one of those who believes that, you know, usually when violence is avoided, good things usually come from that, especially when we can see God's hand and protection. And so now we are going to, believe it or not, we're going to be starting in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And you might be wondering, what happened to those other chapters? Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to get to those. We're actually going to finish the book of 1 Samuel today and step into 2 Samuel. And in order to do this, we're going to have to cover a lot of ground as we look at the path to the throne. That's our theme today, the path to the throne. So let's jump in. Before we do that, if any of you would like a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers have got stacks of them ready to go. They will hook you up. Otherwise, open up your apps. And uh, let's do this. So our first point today is simply this. What have we missed? What have we missed? If you are a note taker and you're looking at your sermon notes right now, you see that there's just a nice, clear, open space right there under what have we missed. And I left that on purpose so that you could just jot down whatever it is that the Spirit causes your brain to catch and hold, catch a hold of. Um, because I'm going to cover five chapters in about eight minutes. So brace yourself. Here we go. All right. In chapter 26, David is going to spare Saul again. 
He's going to do it again. He's already done it once, and now he is going to, he's going to do it again. Here's the situation. Saul is seeking to kill David. I know. That's something new. You've never heard that before if you've been with us on this journey. That's not true. He's just constantly doing it. And so now the situation is that Saul has 3,000 of his best men, and he's almost kind of got David a little cornered right now. And they're asleep one night, and David and one of his servants sneak into the camp, to find Saul. Saul is sleeping in the middle of these 3,000 men. That's a good place for a king to be. And so David sneaks in and his servant says, here's your shot. Here's your shot, Lord. You can end it all right now. And David's heart wouldn't let him do it because this is the Lord's anointed. But David does what he did the last time. He grabs something that only belongs to Saul. He grabs his spear. He grabs a jar of water and he leaves. And then the next morning, David is just straight up talking trash to these men that came with Saul. He's saying basically, hey, you guys ain't as good as you think you are. Anybody seen Saul's spear? And you could just imagine they're all looking around. He goes, no, you don't have it because I do. Okay, that's how close I came to the king today. And I could have harmed him and I didn't. Saul comes out of his tent, hears David and goes, oh my gosh, David. And this, this spirit of repentance just hit him. And he says, I have sinned. David, I will not pursue you, and he lets him go free. Let's move to chapter 27. David's been through this scenario that I just described a couple of times. And he's come to the conclusion, I know Saul meant what he said when he said it, but I also know that that's going to change, and he's going to try to kill me again. So David and his 600 men do something that is pretty wild, but when you think about it, it was pretty genius. He goes and moves and lives with the Philistines. Yes, the very ones that he's been going at war with, almost like the mortal enemy of Israel, he goes and he lives with them. He comes to the king of Gath and he says, can I come stay here? The king goes, all right, I don't see why that's such a bad idea. And he goes, well, is there a town that I can live in? He goes, yep, I got one for you. It's called Ziklag. And David takes it. Why? Because it's at the southernmost tip of the land of the Philistines, which puts him literally physically as far away from Saul as possible. Now that goes ahead and takes us to chapter 28. We're going to go back to Saul now. Saul is at war with the Philistines again. But what's different about this time is that he doesn't have Samuel. Samuel has died, okay? Samuel, who was his spiritual leader, his spiritual guider, when he would listen to him, he's, he's gone. So Saul comes up with the idea that I'm going to find a medium. And a medium would be, you know, someone at that time who was well-versed in the area of the spirit world. And he finds this medium and he asks her to, to bring back the spirit of Samuel. And she does. The problem is, it's almost like waking up this old crotchety man who was in a nap and he didn't want to be bothered. Samuel shows up and he's like, what am I doing here? Why did you call me back? What exactly is your problem right now? He didn't say that. That was just me, okay? Saul falls on his face and he says, Samuel, you don't understand. I, I, I'm, I'm about to go into battle with, with the Philistines and I'm scared. And the Lord has not been talking to me. And, and I, I don't know what's going on. And Samuel goes, I do. I can tell you why the Lord isn't speaking to you. It's because you wouldn't listen to him. You wouldn't obey him. So no, the Lord has left you. And guess what? Tomorrow you're going to lose. Oh, and by the way, I want to also let you know, you and your sons tomorrow will be with me. Now, you got to understand, remember, he's not talking to the physical Samuel. He's speaking to Samuel's spirit because Samuel, the physical Samuel, is in the dirt. 
So when he said, you're going to be with me, ooh, that's not good. All right, let's move on to chapter 29. In chapter 29, those same Philistines that Saul's about to go to war with, well, they're kind of doing a little, a little battle check, a little army check right now, okay? And the army is walking past the commanders of the Philistines. And so they're checking them, making sure everybody looks good, everybody's prepared and ready to go. And then they notice this group of Hebrews. And the Philistines go, whoa, whoa, hey, 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 what, what, what are these Philistines doing here? And the king says, well, they've been living with us. David and his men have been fine. They haven't caused any trouble at all. I don't see why they can't come to battle with us. And the Philistines go, no, 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 you don't understand. See, if this David and his men get out there in battle and they decide that they want to get back on, on uh, Saul's good side and they start killing us, you can see where that could be a problem. No, send them back home. Send them back to where they came from. And so David and his men go back to Ziklag. Now, when David and his men get back home, they don't find the place they left. They find their city on fire. They've been attacked. Everyone who lived there has been taken. And so now David and his men, because they find out it's the Amalekites, they go after the Amalekites, they, they, they put a big hurt on them, recover everybody. Nobody died. They brought them all back, their wives, their children, everybody and they got a hold of their livestock, their flocks, and their herds. So they left with a haul, and they go back home. And now that brings us to where we are today in chapter 31. That was it. That was five chapters. I think I did it about seven, eight minutes. Aren't you impressed? No, I don't think so. No. No, no, no. I was just, I was just playing. <laughs> I was just kidding. All right. So that brings us to our second point today, which is... We come to a time of death and lament, a time of death and lament. So Saul and Israel have engaged the Philistines in battle, and church, it's not going well. It's not going well even to the point where the men of Israel are fleeing. They're fleeing. And we find that Saul and his sons have died in battle, including Jonathan. And so this takes us into this painful time of desecration and honor. Desecration and honor. See, the desecration occurs when the Philistines find the bodies of Saul and their sons and they take them back to their homeland. They strip Saul of his armor. They behead him. They put his armor in a temple and they take his body and they hang it on a famous wall in one of their cities. And if any of that sounds vaguely familiar. You can go back and check chapter 17 in 1 Samuel because that's pretty close to what David did to Goliath when he killed him. And Goliath, remember, was a Philistine. So now that brings us to this moment of honor that happens because men from a town called Jabesh Gilead, when they'd heard what happened to Saul, they take a group of what scripture says are valiant men. And they go into this Philistine area. They recover the bodies of Saul and his sons, return them back to their homeland and give them a proper burial. And they honor them. And when word of this gets to David, David speaks words of honor over Jabesh Gilead. And now, church, we come to a moment of retribution 
and lament. Retribution and lament. David is informed of Saul and Jonathan's demise by an Amalekite who apparently survived this battle. And he says, he claims that Saul died by his hand, that he killed Saul, and Saul was the one who commanded him to do it. And because this is Saul, David now wants details. And the Amalekite gives them to him. And as proof of being there and that this happened, he produces Saul's crown and Saul's armband that he would wear. Now, now church, you would think that this, that this would be a, a, a moment where there would be a, a sense of relief for David. Maybe even a little bit of inward celebration because Saul is dead. No more threat of constant pursuit. No more confusion on why his life is in constant danger. No more hiding in caves. The one who had made his life filled with misery and anxiety was finally gone. So see, we can expect that David would have been sad because of Jonathan's death because they shared a unique, deep, powerful friendship. But never forget how David always spoke of Saul as the Lord's anointed. But this sends uh, David into a deep time of mourning. But it also sends him into a deep, another deep type of emotion. See, it's pretty rare that as human beings we process just one emotion at a time. We tend to process two to three at a time. And if we're really good at it, we actually recognize that we have two to three emotions going on. The scary part is most of us don't recognize that. It's the people around us that do. So David is in this moment of mourning and then something else happens. What comes to the surface is the fact that this Amalekite had actually lied about how Saul died. The problem is his story was a little too good. And David believed him in what he said. And David asks him, so what exactly gave you the courage to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? You see, this Amalekite, I think when he comes with the crown and the armband and the story, he's probably thinking, okay, David's going to be glad about this and he's going to hook me up. But you have to remember, David had multiple opportunities to take Saul's life and he would not harm the Lord's anointed. So the Amalekites' reward for this is retribution. And David orders his life to be taken. And now David enters into a time of lament. No more retribution now. He's sitting with the fact that the Lord's anointed and his best friend are no longer alive. And so David writes this lamentation. If you want to turn to First Samuel, excuse me, to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to take a look at this lamentation. We're not going to read the whole thing. But I want you to read just how it is that he speaks of not just Jonathan but of Saul. I'm going to start in verse 21. And David writes, you mountains of Gilboa. Now I want you church to know something. That Gilboa is the place where this battle occurred. Where Saul and Jonathan have, killed, have been killed. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. 
For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. So great is his lament, is David's lament that he wants this to be taught to all of the people of Judah. Every man, woman, and child, he wants them to remember the greatness of not just Jonathan, but of Saul, their king. Hmm. We know of someone who has experienced desecration, lament, and honor. And his name is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, the apostle writes, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They spit on him. And they mocked him. And they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they were done mocking him, they stripped him a second time of his robe. And they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. That is the Son of God desecrated. And then we see a moment of lament that happens in Luke chapter 23. Beginning with verse 26, Luke writes, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And then we see a beautiful moment of honor back in Matthew chapter 27. Beginning with verse 57, Matthew recorded that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. Jesus experienced all of these things out of love for you and for me. Now, church, we're going to move into chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel. And here we find houses divided. In specific, two houses that are divided. The Lord has told David and his wives to move to Hebron. And the people of Judah have received consideration and protection from David. And so they decide amongst themselves to anoint him king over the house of Judah. 
This is now David's second anointing. And it is one more path, one more step on the path to the throne. But over in Israel, the commander of Saul's army, his name is Abner, he decides that he's going to choose the remaining son of Saul. Saul had one living son left. And his name is Ishbosheth, and he makes him king over Israel. And so now with these two appointments, these two houses now stand in opposition of each other. The house of Saul, the house of David, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. So there's no surprise when conflict begins and war soon follows. But what is unique about this war, church, is the makeup of the combatants, the people that are actually doing the fighting, because most of them are related to each other. And how do we know this? Because this is the, the makeup of this is these are the 12 tribes of Israel. We're talking about we're talking about Simeon and Reuben and Levi and Judah and Dan and so forth. So while there, was, there might have been some familiarity, there might have been some relationship, you got cousins that are fighting each other because of the houses that they have chosen to be under. But I think even more specifically, it's because of the king that they chose. One the group chose David and the other group while Ishbosheth may be the one sitting on that particular throne, they're choosing Saul. And I found myself just sitting in this space because Sister Sandy, she asked me a question last week. And she's thinking about this, this thing of this, this concept of, of inner conflict. And she said, I'm just, I'm curious to know why inner conflict is as difficult and hard as it is. See, it's one thing if somebody from the outside comes in, but it's another thing when it's someone from within your own people, within your own home, within your own family. I know that some of us, uh, I, I know some of you here are Seahawk fans. There's somebody in here. There we go. See, I knew there'd be a one. Okay. Oh, there we go. Now we got a whistle. You know, last season was kind of nice with, with, uh, with Gino and your quarterback and everything, but a couple seasons before that were a little bumpy. A little bumpy because you, you had your Super Bowl winning coach, Pete Carroll, and you had your Super Bowl winning quarterback in Russell Wilson. And what started coming to the surface was Russell felt like he should have more say in what's going on with the offense. Okay, I believe the phrase was, you need to let Russ cook, right? And you might hear that today and go, oh, Damien, that's not real conflict. That's just football. Don't ask the men that were in that locker room because you got to know that that was a real thing. Why? Because Russell ain't a Seahawk anymore. All right? I also began to just process for myself. This was a challenge that was put to me by Pastor Pat. He likes putting challenges on you if you get to know him. And he said, Damien, is there anything about this that resonates with you? And I just be, I kind of processed and went back and forth on this. And I just thought, you know what? It's the truth of my family. And whether I share it or not, it doesn't change the truth. My mom had four brothers. 
These were my uncles that I grew up with. These were the men that besides my dad got to speak directly into my life. Three of them lived in California. One of them lived in Texas. Well, one of my uncles passed away. And when he passed away, at the exact same time, my sister was going through a real difficult situation with her health. And she had just had a major procedure. And she's recovering from it, but the recovery isn't going the way we had hoped for. And so we've got a lot of tension and anxiety right now because we're seeking the Lord for her full healing. Well, unbeknownst to anybody in the family, my uncle who had just passed decided that he was going to leave his house to my sister. Now, you got to understand the problem with that is that my uncle had his own kids. And none of us saw this coming. When we actually were informed of it, we were like, what? Why? Now, I want you to understand, my sister, she's wonderful. Everybody, if you met my sister, you would go, oh, your sister's wonderful, because that's just what she is. All right? But where the conflict happened is that my cousins, my uncle's kids, decided to come to my sister's hospital and the room that she was recovering in, and they handed her papers. They served her papers informing her that we're contesting the will and that if we don't get what we want, we're going to sue you. And church, you need to understand, that bomb, when it went off that day, has impacted my family to this very moment. Then I began to think, What kind of inner conflict have we experienced that would be on par with what is happening between Israel and Judah? And I began to think of our own civil war that happened in this country. See, most of the men, when this war got started, when they signed up, they signed up for 90-day terms because none of them thought this war was going to last very long. The war lasted almost four years. From 1861 to 1865, it is estimated that close to 620,000 lives were lost. And I share that with you, church, because as we move into chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, as we move into this transition from separation to unity to coronation, That time of separation was harsh. Actually, chapter 4, it says that this war was long. And we know, if there's anything we know about wars, long wars can be brutal. But it also says that as this war was happening, the house of David was growing stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker. And you would think that the move from separation to unity would be these two kings coming together and sitting and speaking of how we can end this war. But that's not exactly how it happened. See, over in the house of Saul, something went down. That king, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, well, he accuses the, the, the commander of the army. His name was Abner. He, he, commu- he, he, he accused him of something, and Abner didn't like it. Didn't appreciate it. He was so offended that he said, you know what? I cannot believe that you accused me of this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to go over to David and I'm going to broker a peace with him. 
And there's nothing you can do to stop it. That's Damien's version of it. And Abner did just that. So he goes to David and he offers peace. And David accepts it. And David didn't have to accept it, church, because David was winning. But I think David understood the cost. And so he accepts this peace. And then, church, it is not long after that that the elders of Israel also anoint David. And they make him to be king over all of Israel. The path to the throne is complete. David is finally king. And it only took a 17-year-old 13 years to become king. 13 long years. 13 years of, of pain, of tears, of suffering, of mercy, of kindness, of abandonment, and of faithfulness. And so, church, as we, as we look at our next steps today, here's what I want to ask you. What are you waiting for God to do? What are you waiting for God to do for you? See, that's the beautiful thing about this space is because everybody here is waiting for God to do something. And you might be blessed enough to sit here this morning and say, no, you know what? I'm actually kind of good. I'm not waiting on the Lord to do anything. But you might be waiting for him to do something for someone you love. Someone you care about. I, and it, could it be that you're waiting for a certain type of provision, some resources that you currently don't have? Could it be that you're, you're, you're seeking the Lord and you're waiting for him for physical healing? Your physical healing. Could it be that you're waiting for spiritual healing because your spirit and your soul have been wounded? Could it be that you are waiting on the Lord for forgiveness? Maybe for him to forgive you. Maybe for him to help you forgive someone else. Maybe it could be as simple as this. You are waiting on God to help you understand what is my worth? What is my value? The second question I want to ask you is this, and I want to make sure that I ask these questions in the context of what Paul really encouraged us. He said, don't treat non-believers as believers. Don't, don't make that mistake because they're, they, they don't believe in the same Jesus that we do. So I want to first speak to those of you here this morning who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And my question for you is this, do you still trust him to do it? Do you still trust him to do what he said he was going to do? And then for those of you who you are still on your journey, you're still walking this out. I'm still trying to understand who Jesus is and how could he do what he did? How could God, how could... This is my question for you. Can you trust him to do it? Can you trust him to do what he said he was going to do? 
See, if we can look at the faithfulness of God to David, he anointed him and he told him, you will be king. And then, because we're not going to do a rewrite on this. And then David spent the next 13 years of his life running, hiding, fighting for his life. Because, church, we need to understand that this wasn't about David's timing. This was about God's timing. I don't know how many of you, and I'll just ask by a show of hands, how many of you have been in a waiting room and there's a baby about to be born and you're out there waiting for the news? To just, has the baby been born yet? Is everything good? Is, how many of you have been in that situation? Okay, see, if you're a mama, you shouldn't be raising your hand because you weren't in the waiting room. I've been in that situation. Um, the first one for me was my best friend from college. He and his wife were having their first baby. And we're in the waiting room. I'm with his family. I'm with her family. We all know each other. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. We hear a cry. We could have to be the baby. We're in the maternity ward. There's lots of cries going on. We need some proof of what's happening. We hear that the baby's been born, but we haven't seen anything. And so I thought it was a good idea for me to take a piece of paper and I wrote on it and just slid it under the door and the piece of paper said, send out the baby and nobody will get hurt. I was just trying to get, I was just trying to get things moving. And maybe for us today, it would be good for us to just acknowledge that we're in God's waiting room. We're in God's waiting room. And I know we want them to hurry up. God doesn't rush because he knows that his timing is perfect. So church, as we go ahead and we wrap this up today, you might be asking today, why, why was this throne important? You know, you know, this path to the throne, David finally gets there. What, what is the big deal? Well, here's the significance. It's because of the same reason that we passionately pursue God is the same reason why this throne is important because it comes with a promise. David was given a promise and the Lord was faithful to fulfill it. David's path to the throne demonstrates God's faithfulness to him and his faithfulness to us. So church, Here's what I want us to take the next few minutes to do. I just want to encourage you. I want to ask you, actually, if you would just close your eyes. If you have things in your hands, if you could just set them down. And if you could just find yourself just in a posture to just receive what the Lord has for you today. In the name of Jesus. Would you just close your eyes and just take a couple of deep breaths. I want you to receive these promises. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And specifically in the area of faithfulness, David wrote in Psalm 36, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then in Lamentations chapter 3, It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite our prayer team folks to come on forward and be available to us. I want to invite you to just lift up this hymn to the Lord this morning. And if you know this song, I would just just open your mouths and let a joyful noise come from you. If you do not know this song, just receive the words that this song, the promise that this song has for you this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see, and all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Lord God, we speak, we sing, we lift these words up to you because, first of all, you are worthy, but mostly in this moment, 
because you are faithful to us. Thank you for letting us witness this journey that you took David on. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to him again and again and again. Whether he got things right or not, Lord, you remained faithful to him. And that is your promise to us, as we just read in your word. Lord, help us to hold on to your promises. Help us to hold on to this path, this path of pursuing you, of passionately pursuing you. David could have gotten off the path, but he didn't. Help us, Lord, to stay on this path, keeping our eyes and our hearts focused on you and you alone. And Lord, if there are things that we need to bring to you and we have this sense, Lord, of loneliness, would you help us turn to one another? Would you help us to love one another well? Would you help us to see each other and lean in, lift one another up in prayer, and help us, Lord, to find encouragement that no matter what, you are always God, and you will never, ever change from being that. Thank you for this time this morning, this moment to be with you, to be in your word, and to be seen by you. And we ask all this in your holy and precious name. And we all said, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.